You know what? Every failed attempt at switching to a new keyboard gives you one of those good programmer feathers in your caps. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, you won't be able to tell the story because you can't type it out. (laughs) Scotch. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 388 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I assume I survived all the ghosts on Halloween probably. I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is still October 2020, 2020, October 20, 2022. This is the longest day. Yeah. This day has lasted three weeks. Yeah. I was trying to guess about what's going to happen in the future. You know, that's why I was like, I'm super survive Halloween because that's- We don't know. Because, you know, I don't know for sure, but- It's spooky out there. So if I didn't, then- um, uh, somebody make sure my Absolutely. cats are taken care of. You know? Got it. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, Appreciate any it. one of us could be dead by the time this thing airs. That's we don't know. Spooky season. Yeah. yeah. And if that does happen, yeah, that's kind of funny, actually. That <laughs> talked about that. I mean, it, it's tragic, but also <laughs> like in at retrospect, least it's like, comedic timing. Yeah. yeah. And if you're going to go out, you might as well go out on a joke, you yeah. know? Yeah. So <laughs> you need a good closer for your act. Uh, now, before we go any further, there will be profanity in this show, so just know that. You know, that's, that's coming. Uh, and we'd also like to thank our recurring supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Thanks for uh, the, the monthly donations. We appreciate it. Uh, now, this is episode three of our three-part uh, recording three episodes in one day series because mm-hmm. I am going to India after we record these. I'll be in India around the time that they come out. So, except for this one, I think you might be back. I will have been back for like a day or two by the time this one airs. Uh, So, nothing has happened still uh, between last episode of this one, except for a a brief snack break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that was it. That's uh, that's all the news in the whole world between the prior episode and this one. So, we're just gonna go right into questions and just see what see what all of our listeners want to know about. Let's Mm -hmm. go. And we'll talk about it. All right. So the highest uploaded question from podcast.bscotch.net comes from Lank Bonk Pandang, who says- <laughs> All right. I'm here for this. Who says, hey, Super Scotch bros, longtime fan, first time question asker. Did you hear Video Game Donkey's indie publishing studio announcement? In it, he mentions that his main focus is developer and game first publishing to help good games succeed now and in the future. As fairly experienced indie devs, do you guys feel like a publisher with a strong sense of individuality, like Donkey, could be a way forward for indie games that may get left in the dust? Is there anything particular uh, that you would all like to see? So We should first start off and talk about who Donkey is, Yeah, which so, I don't have a really good... I have a very, very hot take on this, so I'll, I'll Sam, do some context. Who's Donkey? Yeah. Who's Donkey? I mean, Donkey. Donkey. Dun- so, <laughs> video game Donkey is a video game critique YouTuber who for the last, I don't even know how ever long, many years has been been around since like the early YouTube days, basically. Yeah. Produces these, these videos that are, uh, semi, semi coherent in terms of just like what's happening, but are very funny, uh, critiques of any given video game that's new and out. I say critiques because usually he's part of the joke is typically just kind of dunking on the game almost no matter what. 
no matter how good it is, there's going to be some kind of sassy. It's know, like a like roast, right? Basically, it's like a roast. Yeah, it's like a roasting channel for video games. Okay, very popular. Uh, has millions of of YouTube subscribers, and as of about maybe three weeks ago now, announced a publishing wing called Big Mode, which he announced via a video on on his channel, which basically saying that he and his uh, he and his wife were tired of kind of sitting on the sidelines, just doing the critiquing. Want to get it, get, get in there, which, you know, that's pretty cool. We'll get in there. Yeah, let's go. Um, mm-hmm. And the way they're going to do that is by having this publishing company, which then uh, would, you know, people would submit their games to whatever else via some form of the website. And then they would, uh, you know, supposedly because of his years of, of doing YouTube stuff is he's well positioned to understand what a good game is and what a good game isn't. And then, in theory, be able to boost the signal of those, um, you know, maybe good games that weren't getting enough attention sort of a thing is roughly the spiel. Um, On their website, they list stuff in the publishing domain that they would assist with that is the usual publisher stuff. So that includes localization, quality assurance, uh, and then, you know, marketing stuff. So the major platform porting. Yeah, and porting. Right, right, right. So Which I mentioned because the technical challenge involved there is high. very obvious. And, yes, and design and design challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, the reason this has caused a bit of like wet from the larger actual industry standpoint, uh, people who are who have been around doing this stuff for a while, is that that list of services listed as publisher capabilities have you know nothing to do with running a video game channel whatsoever. Um, and there's also, not stuff you can learn by critiquing video games that exist in yes. the world. It's a non-overlapping skill set. Yeah. It has nothing to do <laughs> with it, in fact. Uh, and then yeah. the the other piece of it is the fact that uh, Donkey himself, you know, part of the shtick is that he's kind of a dick, you know, in these game videos and stuff like that. Um, in a funny way. But, it's funny, but he's still kind yeah. of a dick. And he says some stuff sometimes, you know, and, you know, that could be certainly crosses a line. And so you got to ask yourself a question too, then, which is that most, uh, you know, indie game publishers don't have a constant stream of things coming out of them that are jokes that could maybe cross over into not funny for people territory, which mm-hmm. means that if your game is tied to them, I don't know, maybe a platform's like, you know what? Fucking no, we're not going to have your game on our platform anymore because your publisher said some really whack stuff. Uh, so there's there's a variety of concerns there, many of which are completely valid. Uh, and then the the kind of question surrounding this then has been more or less what uh, what this listener's asking, which is like, what is that? Is this is that good? What does that mean? And uh, well, I think there's there's a, yeah, there's other layers to this as well. I mean, one of the things that we've seen in the in the past is that having having a wildly popular YouTube channel pick up your game and talk about it doesn't necessarily do anything on its own. Oftentimes when you see a popular YouTube channel talking about a game, it's because the game has itself gotten the attention of the YouTube channel. There's sort of right? there's a symbiotic relation. They both they both influence each other. And so in many cases, you know, if it's it's gonna be a hard it's hard to say which one starts which one uh, in most of most cases you see. 
because there's also other platform effects going on themselves. So for example, you can release a game on Steam that you know manages to get some traction because of Steam algorithms. Maybe you got like a feature that day or you built up a shitload of wish list. Maybe no YouTubers answer your call whatsoever because this happens uh, that day. But then, you know, the next week people pick it up because everyone's fucking playing it. And so yeah. you get, and then it maybe feeds back in the system. So there's, there's not a lot of a, a direct, it's good. We know it's good, for example, to have a YouTuber cover your game. It's it better hurt. than not having a YouTuber. Yes. <laughs> and scale is important, game. right? In terms of like, if you get someone who could get you 7 million views, that is also better than you know, someone who does not. Um, so it's good, but the amount that it is good is not as important as the fundamental facts of the game that is being sold. Well, it's a, it's a combination of the game and the the way that the game interacts with the, with the market. Right. So like, um, if your if your game gets, you know, a couple million views on a YouTube video over the course of a couple of months, that's, that's actually not the same as the game getting, uh, viewed by 2 million people on, on store, yep. like in a recommended section. Right. Because in one of them is an entertainment product and the other is the actual store where they can buy the game right then and there. Right. And one of those has a dramatically higher conversion into revenue than the other. And you could probably guess it's it's the Steam store one. Right? Um, and so, yeah, so the, the exposure is good, but having those relationships with platforms to try to try to negotiate ways to like get good placement in there and also having the game be the kind of game that surfaces itself and feeds into the algorithms that the platforms use to try to figure out what games are good, right? If If your game is the kind of game where when people first pick it up, they just sink six hours into it right out of the gate. The algorithms pick up on that and mm -hmm. it gets pushed up to the top, right? And it being on the front page of Steam for a month is something that no YouTuber could possibly compete with in terms of influencing sales yeah. figures, right? And so one of the kind of tricky things that I think Dunky has is like what, what he has um, in his wheelhouse is this YouTube channel. Um, which is a, a good but still minor influence on the success of a game in any, any given game, right? Um, and all the stuff that he has now has to learn on, on the tech and the business side and and what it means to work with all the platforms and stuff, that's an entirely new skill set. So basically, he's got a minor and kind of like easy part figured out and all the really hard, expensive, challenging stuff he's got to start from scratch, which isn't to say that he can't do it, you know? Oh, no. Um, it's just a thing that he's going to have to figure out. Um, but the other difficult part is just the conflict of interest part, right? Yeah. Going from being a, a critic of something to being a producer of that thing, um, means that like, can he use his channel to promote the games that he is the publisher of when his whole thing on his channel is kind of, like you said, kind of roasting and like making mm -hmm. fun of games and kind of dunking on them, even though people are seeing them and even though they're games that he, in a lot of cases really likes, he still kind of pokes fun at them and stuff, but he has no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. So there's no question from the viewer of like, is this genuine? Does he actually like this game or actually dislike this game? Well, as soon as he starts taking games that he has a financial stake in and putting them on yeah. his channel, that authenticity is in question, right? And so would he have to start a new channel and start over with subscribers for promotion purposes, right? Mm -hmm. And would people move to that channel to, you know, th so there's like a whole bunch of really hard questions there um, that I think he's going to, uh, he's going to have to deal with. And again, people do all kinds of things that are really hard and oh, yeah. they do really well at them. So this isn't to say that, that it's a, 
a bad idea out of the gate or that it's impossible or whatever. It's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of roadblocks that he's going to have to get through. In the absence of answers to all of Many these questions, questions the, the most sort of statistically reasonable assumption is that this isn't going to work very well um, because it doesn't work very well for almost any publisher that yeah, starts up. Not because of him. Yeah, not because of him particularly. Just yeah. Well, yeah, well, I think it's the combo. The fact that it, this is an extremely difficult uh, business move in a sac- the, the market is saturated with like indie publishers, right? Um, and there are many really well established ones that already have answers to all of these questions. So, mm-hmm. so from a competition standpoint, like it's a very hard market to break into. As far as we know, so in terms of like who he is. Um, he doesn't have the expertise to actually pull off m- most of the aspects of publishing. Mm-hmm. So, and and we don't know if he plans to hire people or like what the plan is there, right? Um, so, well, he would have to, and he may, and the thing is, he you know he may have the financial resources to get yeah really great people who do he might poach people thing, from all you know? the currently successful indie publishers. Like I don't, yeah, I don't know. So, so there are ways that this can come move. together. Yeah. <laughs> but in the absence of any information about that, if all we have to go on is it's. This guy, as far as we know, where his expertise lies in his conflicts of interest problems, and that is just him and his wife, and no announcement that I'm aware of of any other participants or any mention at all that there will be more, right? Given only that, the only thing we can say is that unless all those other things get answered with good answers, then this is probably not going to work. Yeah. yeah. And there's really there's an interesting parallel here. There's a, this guy who, for the longest time, has, has done World of Warcraft videos, Bellular. Um, over time, he expanded his channel from just talking about WoW to just talking about, like, bl- I think just Blizzard games. So he also mm-hmm. talked about Hearthstone and stuff. But then he uh, he built up enough revenue from all of his all those videos that he wanted to start his own game studio. Mm-hmm. So he started his own game studio. What's been really interesting is I've actually fallen off of watching his videos because because so much of his videos now he's he's really kind of like trying to move into the role of being a game designer, right? Mm-hmm. And so so much of his videos now are just these like deep critiques about all these different design aspects of these different games. And every now and then he'll kind of like throw in lines about like how he's doing it differently, you know, in the game that he's working on. Um at a certain point, it's like it feels like it's kind of slowly more. His channels are slowly morphing into like trying to prime people to be interested in the things that he's making, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, as opposed to being like about what he needs to do as a business yeah. move to make that all work, right? Because yeah. you can't just um, leverage a completely disconnected market that you've already yeah found some success in into a completely separate market, and you you have to find a way to move it, which is mostly impossible, right? Mostly, but, yeah, it's mostly not yeah. going to happen. It's mostly yeah. you have to use yeah. use your resources you generate from somewhere else to just start the new thing mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah, right? but there's but again, there's this conflict of interest thing, which is like if he's making a game that he views as a competing product to the game that he had previously covered, then his coverage of the other of the original game is going to increasingly slant negative because he doesn't want people mm-hmm. to be super pumped and into this game that would be directly taking players from his game. <laughs> I do, and I do. I so, think it's worth it's yeah. worth pointing out. I think there's another content creator um, who recently has switched from the critique side to trying to build stuff also, which is uh, Game Maker's Mark, Toolkit. Right? Yeah, over at Game Maker's Toolkit, which has been so fun to see because he does these very, very well put together what I call it, maybe less critique emerged analysis videos where they're 
kind of deconstructing how games look at stealth or, you know, like other kind of interesting mechanical things. And he'll, you know, he has good access to developers and stuff. And so he'll get really good pull quotes from the designers and actually talk to people about how they ended up making the decisions they did to make X, Y, or Z thing work. Um, and then he's gone and made his own magnet game, uh, which is basically a platform where you have like a magnet you chuck around and solve puzzles with. And it's been very fun watching his breakdown videos of, I guess we're calling it a breakdown video. It's kind of funny, but like the the breakdown videos of after having made like the first one, basically the first iteration of this thing, all of the shit that he's that like the the depth of the complexity of trying to make all these decisions in even this very simple game context, right? And he also yep. he's not working with anybody. He's publishing straight to uh, I guess like either the HTML5 one or it's just downloadable on. Um, itch like itch or yeah, something, PCX, yeah. so no platform management stuff whatsoever no localization um not he's you know he's not doing anything with marketing river like it's just yeah, his channel stuff, right? stuff yeah. um yeah and so it's it's been fascinating seeing him like grapple with with the reality of the stew in which those decisions that from the outside are they're, it's very easy to, to be critiquing stuff and to mistake your ability to critique for your ability to produce something of equal value to the thing you're critiquing, well, right? And as a as a critic, something that you're looking at from the outside may look like a decision when really it's a response to a constraint. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you say, like, why did they why did they make the game like this instead of you know just just adding this other thing over here that would have solved this problem? It's like, well, maybe you'll find out if you try to make something <laughs> yeah. like that. Because yeah. maybe Maybe it's way harder and more expensive than you thought because of some technical things that you know you just didn't recognize yeah. at the time. Right? Yeah, it's been it's been fascinating because he he's always had just a bunch more. He doesn't have a he doesn't have like a axe to grind or like weird. He doesn't have like a kind of cynical edge. I think a lot of uh, reviewers typically it's more kind of academic, kind of, right? It's just kind it's of, more academic. Yeah, it's, it's been really fascinating watching him make the jump. And I think that's one that he's able to take his viewers on. Right, the viewership is about what is it to make a game and and how does design work and stuff. And so they're able to translate into a different kind of thing on his channel, mm-hmm. which is let's watch someone make a game and talk about that experience for the first time and, and all the stuff they're learning. Um, we had, I'm not, Duncan gives me a plenty of pause because it's not the same sort of. Well, I mean, it's shit. to me, it's, it's, it's the same as like any, anybody, any company or whatever who has exclusively operated in one domain. And then just suddenly they're like, and now we're doing this. Totally different thing. Google Stadia, <laughs> you know? for example. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I we mean, were we really? were very skeptical about that. And it's like, sure, they have a lot of resources. They have all this stuff. But like they're coming into a space that they do not have a full handle on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they're coming into the Which, console space, basically. Like the PC console kind of like market segment was basically yeah. what they were doing. But from like of just mobile gaming, but like so specifically, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah. yeah just and, but again, place. like that's how everybody gets there, right? Like that's how Nintendo came into it. That's how Microsoft came into it. Like a lot of times people are coming from totally unrelated places mm-hmm. and getting into these industries. Oh, and also most of the time well, it's unsuccessful. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Almost, almost always in the long term, it doesn't pan out. Sometimes it does, right? Oh, and, 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 you, and you really and can't predict like, which is going to be which. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like Xbox and PlayStation both. The only reason either still exists today is because of the bigger parent Entity. company yep. that was able to keep them standing when through the failures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if they didn't have those, then they wouldn't have been able to support themselves, and they would have been 
there were various points in the history of both of those where they would have been gone. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it's pretty wild learning about like the, the history of consoles and of the games industry about things like, you know, I didn't know that, you know, back in like the Atari days and stuff, one of the prime competitors was a, was called, I don't know, I don't know how it's pronounced, but it was like Colco or Coleco or something, which was short for the Connecticut Leather Company, which was a leather company that started making the pivoted consoles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they were one of the main competitors in the console space until Atari took over and then they collapsed. Right. And so, uh, you know, at, at that time, if you're looking at it, you're like, wow, they really did it. Right. Like they actually went from being a leather company to being a video game company. But in the end, it, yeah, it didn't pan out. Uh, so, but, you know, still, you know, props to them for making this as far as they did. That's well, it's the thing. It's like, I, I, you know, there's been some weird feelings people have about it where there's, uh, I say it feels inappropriate to be like mad at a guy. For, it's weird. It's just really weird to be oh, mad yeah. at right. Donkey for like wanting to try to do a thing. And yeah, I think, I do think about it's, it. yeah, it's like, I do think it's cool. I think it's important to recognize, like it's important enough to read uh, industry people's response to it, to get a take on like, you know, where people who have expertise in this thing, where their concerns would be with it before you go throw your game in and, and sign a deal. Yeah. You know? yeah. The part where I would end up being mad is so there's a, there's a cost to learning how to do things. Right. And that cost is mostly failure. Yep. Right? That's, that's yeah. how you learn is you try to do a thing and it doesn't work. And then you try a different way. Right. The question is, what is the cost of that failure and who's bearing it? Right. Yep. So, so if we have an indie publisher who doesn't actually have experience in the publishing space, then what failures do they learn from, right? Mm-hmm. They learn from their failures on the backs of the indie developers whose games they're trying to publish. So that's where we get to be mad about it, but that depends on the outcomes, right? Because mm-hmm. if they don't do the full – if they don't, if they don't go all the way and like hire the right people and, and like learn the right things, get the right connections and and do all of that stuff, then the end result is not just that they aren't successful and that's it. It's that a bunch of indie devs come to them and trust them to make their game successful. And then they don't. It's now an opportunity cost problem where those devs may have found success another way. But it all depends on what the cost actually turns out to be. Is it mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it actual uh, failure or, you know, or what actually does it look like? That's, yeah. Like my perspective on publishers is they're the hedge funds of the video games world. Mm-hmm. So what you'll see sometimes is, is if you're looking to like, you've got some money, you want to invest it. It's all these different like index funds and, and different companies like financial advisory firms. And they'll be like, we'll take your money here. Well, yeah, look at, look at all the returns that we've gotten and they'll send you a bunch of information and they'll say, this fund that we have has earned a 15% return on average per year for the past 30 years, right? You look at that and you're like, wow, that's a really well-managed fund. I should, I should put my money into that, right? But what they don't tell you is that's not the only fund that they have. They, they have hundreds of different portfolios of funds. And then there's just a survivorship bias mm-hmm. where the one that they're going to advertise to you is just whichever one has got has gotten the most return over this time period. But that was actually an outlier. And there's no guarantee that it's going to happen again. So they mm-hmm. can't predict uh, good investments. They just make a lot of investments. And then they're only going to show you the ones that make it look like they're doing an incredible job, mm-hmm. right? So the same thing goes with with 
publishing, in my in my opinion, which is like publishers don't make games successful. They take games that have a lot of they, they try to pick games that have a lot of potential. Most of the time they miss anyways, right? Because mm-hmm. it's really hard to predict. Um, and then some of those games do well, but it's impossible to decouple whether they did well, uh, whether they were boosted by things that the publisher did or whether that was going to happen anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's so, the way we always talk about money. Like, yeah, because that's, the, cause that's having, the big thing is if the publisher gives you money so that you aren't able to actually make the game or get it to the platforms or whatever, right? Um, that's their skin in the game, but also they enabled something that otherwise couldn't have happened. Yep. Yep. So I don't know. I mean, my take on it is like, good on him for trying something new. It's going to be hard. Doing new things is always hard. It may be harder than he anticipates, or maybe he does anticipate it. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. Um, maybe he'll nail so, it. It's hard just, maybe he'll just, nail it. Maybe he won't. Yeah. We, we'll find out. <laughs> uh, all right. Next question comes from Chalosis, who says, have y'all ever tried alternative keyboard layouts? Such as Dvorak, or use Caracorder again. Okay, so we'll talk about Caracorder because I've I've got it in my drawer, <laughs> collecting dust right now. Uh, I, so Caracorder, I talked about it probably uh, maybe like a few months, months ago, ago or a year I think ago. It was last I, December, I think. Yeah, I think I, I think I ordered it in like October of last year or something, mm-hmm. and then it kind of came like around the winter break or something. Um, and I was like, oh, I because I wanted to get it before winter break so that I could take that time to learn it, mm-hmm. right? Because it, a caracorder is basically this these weird two sort of dome shaped things you like put your hands on, and then they have all these little joysticks coming off of them. Yeah, there's one joystick for each finger. Yeah, um, and so the idea is then with a keyboard, you're constantly moving your fingers off of the keys to go hit different keys for different letters. So the caracorder basically says, "What if uh, instead you just have a joystick?" And so your finger stays on the joystick and then you can push it left, right, up, down uh, to get the different letters. And therefore, you don't have to continually lift your hand off of the device to reposition it. And that's where a lot of the errors come from, right? Um, and then they have a cool extra layer, which is the cording layer, which I never got to. But that's the idea of, of hitting a couple like keys simultaneously and then just an entire word just gets spit out on its own fully fully spelled correctly and and everything right um so the idea is once you really get the hang of of typing with this thing and then using the cording that you can do 300 words per minute 400 words per minute just just right. blasting stuff out they 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 advertise it as typing at the speed of thought just as you're thinking about stuff just the words are just coming out just like when you're speaking right um, I ended up not using it because it it had a couple of weird design decisions that really just threw a, a hard wrench in the thing. One was uh, was that their philosophy of saying like, oh, you don't need to lift your fingers off the device is true for your fingers, but not for your thumbs. So each finger has one joystick, but then each thumb has three joysticks. <laughs> um and and two of them are so hard to reach that I could I could just feel the repetitive stress injuries like <laughs> as I was starting to learn the thing. Um, and they also just left out a handful of keys that are super important for programming. You cannot make a pipe symbol with the caracorder. There is no there is no pipe, which again um, is wild to me to advertise a keyboard replacement that doesn't have doesn't have all keys the keys on it. Feels mm-hmm. like um, step one. Yeah, you know. Uh, in addition. Um, there are no F keys, so like F1 through F12, right? Also uh, strange. You, you, you basically create the F keys by pressing three keys at the same time. So you need both hands t- to activate a function key. 
Um, but they actually only had, a, I think it was like F1 through F9 or something like that. Um, and then uh, numbers were also two key presses at the same time. And mm-hmm. if you wanted to, if you wanted to do a lot of the alt stuff, like you know, the, like dollar signs or whatever, a lot of those kinds of things are three key presses at once. So, so some of these are, would be forgivable if you could rebind stuff and just do whatever you want, but you can't. Do yeah, because if if I could rebind it, then I would be like, I don't like this layout. I'll make my own layout that actually works for me, where I can have easy access to things like numbers and programming mm-hmm. brackets and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's not rebindable. I did send them a, an email basically saying like, hey, I was really excited about this thing, but the fact that it's not rebindable means that I, I actually just can't use it. Um, and the other, the other kind of obstacle that they have is that it's a huge investment. If you want to learn how to use this thing, you have to spend a lot of time learning it, but now you are beholden to that company's device. You can't go buy a different, like slightly different, like caricorder from another company, right? Um, and so you are now totally reliant on their support of the product and, and everything else. It's a huge risk. Um, and I ended up just kind of noping out of there once I got mm-hmm. deep enough into it to kind of see see those cracks. Um, but, you know, it's uh, I haven't checked back in on it really no point. since then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've kind of like looked up uh, just a couple of things here and there, but I haven't seen any like big announcements about the new features that they've been adding or anything like that. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've played sure. with in my, in my younger days, I've played with alternate keyboard layouts like Dvorak and programmers Dvorak and stuff. Yeah. I tried that um, too. But, yeah. uh, I think the, the reality is just that the absence of portability is yes. is such a problem, um, and especially anything that's a muscle memory, right? That you've learned very deeply. It's like so, if you've been, I've been typing on a quarter keyboard my whole life, right? All day, every day, for a lot of it, right? Yep. Um, and I could type pretty fast uh, doing that, but like typing speed is not a limitation that I have, right? Mm-hmm. As in, like at this point, it's not a meaningful. At this stage in the stuff that I'm doing and all of that. The limitations are all other things, right? Um, and uh, and so, learning one of these alternate ways of doing things, there's there's a long period of months to years, right, where you can't type with the new way, and your brain is unlearning how to type the other way, right? Mm-hmm. As it's trying to figure out, you're just like you get clumsy as it's trying to kind of remap, right? Um, and the other side of that, like yeah, that that probably would like reduce some RSI, make it a little easier and faster for me to type certain things, right? Mm. But since that's not really a problem that I have, or at least not one that I can't solve other mechanisms, the cost is way too high to well, this is what I actually do that. But get into on it, because the question is always, do you actually know what your bottleneck is? Mm-hmm. We, talk about, we talk about production a lot, we talk about DevOps, et cetera. And the ideas of bottlenecks apply to you as a person just so much as an entire system of a team or studio or whatever else, right? So is the is it really the problem that you cannot type fast enough? Is that actually what is your issue? Or uh, or is it just something else? Is it typos specifically? Is it typos of a very particular word? Because there's ways to solve those other problems um, that are actually a lot easier than doing something like, I don't know, relearning an entire muscle memory thing that also everybody in the entire world relies on similarly, right? Um, there's... I think it's tempting to throw out all of it uh, in pursuit of like solving a quote unquote problem, which may, yes, it is like actually a problem that, yeah, QWERTY keyboards weren't designed for people to really to, you know, type on at speed. But um, 
it's not one that meaningfully impacts day-to-day work as yeah, much mean, if, as other things. That makes sense. Probably. Yeah, if, if you're For typing at people, like 30 yeah. FPS or FPS words per minute, 30 <laughs> words per minute, uh, that's slow yeah. and your keyboard isn't the problem. Yeah. Right. Because there are people who can type 150 words per minute, like, you know, at the top end on a QWERTY keyboard. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, at, I'm probably the, I might be the slowest of the three of us and I type about 100. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, and, and if you're already, and if you're able to type at like 100 words per minute on a QWERTY keyboard, then what are you doing that you need to go that much faster than that, <laughs> yeah, right? Because yeah. like there's also there's also a, an, a weird advantage to having a certain amount of sort of throttling back on your ability to output characters at a certain speed. If you're like – if you're typing out a, uh, an email or, or something like that, right, um, having to take the time to like think about what you're going to say isn't necessarily a bad thing, Correct. right? If, if you could just like, like barf – stuff out there at 500 words per minute and just hit send, um, there's a good chance that you may end up act, you may end up saying things that you didn't think too hard about, or you may just be saying way too much shit and nobody wants to read all <laughs> this old thing I love, which is, uh, if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the limitation is not the speed of the fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other, other things that come up because of it, which usually error related more so than um, like speed related. So I think, uh, I think it's just like a, it's a bottlenecking thing where you have to really just ask yourself like, what, what problem are you actually trying to solve? And not just like, I need to type faster. Like, no, you, you probably don't. What actually is the problem you're talking about specifically? What, what about the typing is causing you the issue? Not like, it's almost like when you say as a business, we need to make more money. It's sort of like, mm-hmm. yes, Obviously, but that's not like a problem. Yeah, that's, that, it's obviously better to have more money. It's also yes. obviously better to type faster, right? But <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's like, but what problem are you setting out to solve? Right? Yeah, because that's not really a thing to grapple onto that is meaningful. It usually, given your context, in a way that like lets you leverage some new decisions, you know, to do some stuff in the future. So yeah, it's, it's actually a side effect of the thing you're actually supposed to be doing because like because like making money as a business is the consequence of the business doing the things that it does right Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that you make money is by doing those things right and doing them in like certain ways right there's only Mm -hmm. one organization that makes money and that's the federal reserve Mm -hmm. everybody else i mean banks everybody else does other stuff also since they get to lend money that doesn't exist yeah but everybody else does things and then they acquire money you know, mm-hmm. as a consequence of doing the things. So, if your goal is to get money, uh, you've kind of skipped the you've skipped the step. Yeah, the yeah. Type of what is it that you're actually doing? The typing speed is similar, right? Like, yeah. How? What are you typing for? <laughs> what is? Are you mm-hmm. are you writing emails all day? Are you a novelist? You know, and if you're mm-hmm. a novelist, are you are you the type that literally you write every single word once and almost your consciousness, and then you're done? which is very rare, right? Or are you the 99% kind where you write a sentence and then you're like, mm, I don't know, you know, and then you rewrite that mm-hmm. sentence. So then you mm-hmm. kind of type out the paragraph, but you hesitate halfway through the sentence because you're like, how should I end this, right? Like, is it the typing speed, <laughs> right? That's, yeah, that's you, the problem. Yeah, it's probably a different kind of a tooling problem, I imagine. Keyboard gets the job done. 
and I've like sort of I mean, hey, that's where I've landed. I'm like, it's fine. Yeah, and it's then, fine. it's totally fine. And when yeah. it comes to ergonomics, there are better solutions. Yes, which we actually talked about in the first of the three episodes we recorded we a couple second, weeks ago. Yeah, a couple, a couple weeks, weeks ago, and in, in your time, dear listener. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's the ergonomic. You get a you get a split keyboard. You get a yep. uh, ergodox or something weird, right? And, and there are also like you don't have to go all the way to like fully auction a keyboard layout, right? If you identify certain things, uh, as I heard, like a common thing that that programmers will do um, is they'll rebind their caps lock key to like control or something, right? Because mm. they need the control button a lot more than they need the the caps lock button, right? Mm. And you don't need to have a different keyboard. Like you can like just have some kind of software that just intercepts it and changes it or whatever, right? Um, so you don't need to full on redo things to get an outcome, right? Like, and I think that's that's where this, this problem comes into play is it's like, oh, I need to make typing just better for me. So let me go learn Dvorak because the end result is like, quote unquote, just like better across the board, mm-hmm. right? And like that, that may even be true to some extent that there's just like on average, the whole thing is somehow like better, right? But that's an untargeted approach solving yeah. kind of a non-problem, you know? Because um, the question is, what do you? What's the actual problem, and what's the because highest leverage solution to yeah. that? Which is almost definitely not spending months learning a new keyboard layout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it for fun, I mean, have at it. Absolutely. I think what it is yeah, if if the degree of specificity of your problem is such that any person would also agree that they have the same problem, then you haven't really narrowed it down enough yet to be making a meaningful decision about what to do about that problem. So, for example. Because you're money. saying like every, everybody would be like, it'd be great if I could type faster. Exactly. Which course, that's yeah. just, sure, that'd be great. Yep. But so the more, <laughs> yeah, the more that everyone would agree with the sentiment, the less you actually have in the ability to make headway against what the actual problem is because you haven't gotten specific enough yet about that problem. Well, yeah, the, the more wholesale your solution is, right? Oh. Yeah. Then the more mismatch there has to be between your solution and the actual and problem, the problem you have. and how much leverage you have, because also the bigger the solutions is, the, the the solution space, and the more of it that has to be done at one time. Like it's it's this, this is you're talking large batch delivery here, right? Learning a yeah. keyboard layout, and that is the most difficult, expensive way to do something in terms of time and effort and difficulty, right? Because none of it works until all of it works, right? Mm-hmm. You can't. And that's the thing, like, if you if you go read, like, people describing their experiences of, of learning to keyboard layouts, right? This, the details vary a little bit, but the archetype is always the same, which is when I first started, my typing speed was, like, 5, and my <laughs> error rate was 90%, right? But after two weeks, I was up to, like, 15, and my error rate was only 50%. Mm-hmm. And then after a few months, I was, like, half as fast as I used to be on my old layout, right? And so in this whole time they're doing this, like putatively to be faster at typing, they've reduced their typing speed and increased their error rate by an enormous amount, right? And made just every waking moment of using that keyboard a living hell. (laughs) (laughs) Which sometimes could be worth it, because we talk a lot about tools, right? Sometimes it could be worth it. I think in the case of keyboard... Probably is it, yeah. But it could yeah. be. Could probably be. isn't. It could be. It's probably not though. Yeah, probably not. So <laughs> I guess that's the, that's the verdict. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, would yeah, yeah. I would push towards like the go. Don't go for the whole whole last change. Basically, try to identify what's going on. They're trying to solve. You're trying to solve RSI, and you, even if you're trying to solve typing speed, 
things that improve your ergonomics will also improve your typing speed, right? Mm-hmm. So like do that stuff first because that's a that's a better that's an important thing to be doing anyway. Because like as Sam said, get ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Wait, was that in the last episode too? Yeah. We're doing callbacks. We never, we never Call, do yeah, callbacks. These are callbacks, exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is the only time in podcast history where, where we vaguely remember what we talked about in mm-hmm. fairly recent episodes. But we don't you know, know if it was this one or one of the other two. So. <laughs> you. Yeah. We still don't remember quite which one, but it was <laughs> recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. If if you want to do it, do it. But I don't know. I mean, but do you need to do it? Do you? You don't have questions. Yeah, you, Mm-hmm. Questions. At the very least, you'll have some good stories. It's, you you know, know what? Every failed attempt at switching to a new keyboard gives you one of those good yeah, programmers. Yeah, it's great. Actually, and there's yeah. another you won't thing be you able to tell too. the story because you can't type it out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Verbally, you'll be able to say it. <laughs> there's another thing you can do too, because it's something a thing that I've noticed also with people typing, right? Is that the thing that slows so many people down is they still have to look at the keyboard, right? So yeah. there's another solution to that, which is to black Stop. out all your keycaps. Now you can't see what the keys are. And you have no choice but to learn them, right? Like mm-hmm. I I use a jet black keyboard. My fingers know where every fucking key is, right? I don't actually I like I couldn't tell you where they are if I was looking at a keyboard, but my fingers know where they are, right? Mm-hmm. And like there are some keys that I still tend to fuck up because I don't use them that often, right? But remember. But on the whole, like that was because like it doesn't help to look at the keyboard, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm always looking at the screen, typing. And but like there's that. an important note here, which is that the, there was a time when Jenny needed to access your computer. It couldn't because there are no fucking keys visible. <laughs> so it, become, it became unusable for anybody else in your house, which could be good. Maybe it's good security good. practice. I don't know. You, know, you just, have, secure, just have an extra keyboard laying around so you can plug it in if you, know, if you absolutely yeah. have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah. I do. I do love those kind of like rip the bandaid off wholesale conversion things where you're just like, I look at my keys too much. What if I literally couldn't? You you could also do a thing where you get some kind of a cover, right? That you kind of like put your hands underneath sometimes. You can't like, it kind of blocks your view of the keyboard. There's all kinds of ways to do it. Those are always great. You can get little like like, vinyl or those, you know, those like stickers that we used to have as kids that like you stick on car windows. They're like, they're not sticky. Whatever the fuck. I haven't seen those in my whole life since then, so I presume they still exist. Or maybe they're made out of lead. I don't know. But Yeah, they probably cause a lot of cancer. (laughs) But like but those little guys, because they just like really stick nicely to stuff and then they just come right Mm -hmm. off, you know. Mm -hmm. Just get a whole bunch of those, slap them on top of your keys and you're all you're good to go. I I always wanted to have get a point where where each key has its own little like screen, little like Mm -hmm. you know, little little screen mm. on there and you can change what's displayed on it. I mean, that I would love that. Especially if I like, I'm playing Kerbal Space Program or something. It's like, I want my space bar to have like a big staging button on it, you know, and Ooh, like have yeah. WASD like turn into arrows, you know, and like Q and E turn into like a little, like a roll, like a little roll arrows or something. You're saying this oh. at the same time, I'm just having uh, this sort of dev nightmare that I've always had ever since we added controller support, which is people being like, could you support... This mm-hmm. weird thing that I bought that no one has ever heard of, this weird device that has these strange knobs and having people, you know, in the space program developer forums be like, hey, how come you're not supporting my really weird keyboard and giving me yeah. a space button? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> my, my beef with keyboards is that it seems, it seems like 
somebody's always like, I made this new keyboard that like it has tubes and you put your arms inside of and then you like tickle a fuzzball, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, that's a whole new fucking thing. I don't, that's too, you went too far, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in keyboard features, you went, you were trying to solve a simple problem and now you've, you've destroyed everything that I loved (laughs) in the world, you know? So like what, what I want is just like, like a few episodes we talked about the idea of like, yeah, just have a keyboards just have a detachable numpad section and you should be able to just mm-hmm. move it to either side. There are right? keyboards that have that. Or you can buy there's actually there's like a it's like a 60% keyboard, I think is the name of it. That's the it, one that has okay. just like just the letters, just the part. letters and, and like yeah, the top yeah. Part That's largely what um, I use for you know uh, for art stuff. I typically yeah, and then I you can get like a custom head. board or something to do the rest, or you know, custom mm-hmm. keypad, like whatever. Yeah. So like, I I want the I, I like the layout. I'm okay with the layout. Layout's good. I just I want I want I want it to be more flexible and have more features, you know. But I don't need it to like be a whole new thing, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but everybody always just swings too far. Yeah. I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyways, all right, well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.